Thank you, everyone, for coming this morning. Um, and I'm very excited. I think we're going to have some very good discussion around this, um, an issue which continues to be controversial in terms of how the histories of uh, women artists who've worked with the moving image or women artists who've worked in any media are represented and how their histories are told. Um, so before introducing um, the guest speakers today, I just want to start with um, two quotes, really. I'm taking from Liz Rode, the filmmaker Liz Rode's uh, piece that she wrote in 1979 called Whose History?, uh, which was her response to the withdrawal of her work and the work of other women um, artists from the Filmers Film exhibition, which took place in 1979, just next door at the Hayward Gallery, which was uh, a survey of formal filmmaking. Um, and her very... her. Her essay has real urgency in posing the questions around what history means. So this is very much what we're going to be discussing today. In a patriarchal class-based society, a man's position is determined by social and economic factors, but women are further defined as secondary within that class system. The value of their activities and their contributions to that society are, are considered secondary. This difference is in experience, difference in opportunities, must produce difference in history, a history of secondary value and largely neglected and unwritten. Film history defined by men necessarily positions women outside its concerns. Women appear, but on whose terms? Within whose definitions? Apparently, historical accuracy is based upon acceptable facts, that is, those facts that are the concern of men. Unacceptable facts are forgotten or rearranged. If they are remembered, they're contained within the existing fabric. Alice Guy made some 200 films between 1896 and 1907. Why has she been forgotten? Her films attributed to Jassé and Fouillard. So written in 1979, is this still the case today? Have things moved on? Have things improved? Are we still, as women filmmakers, um, as uh, women filmmakers now seen as um, archival, now past, are, are these still second of secondary value? So I'd like to introduce um, um, Maud Jacquim. Um, Maud is an independent curator and writer um, currently working on a retrospective at the Jeu de Pomme on Katerina Tomadaki and Maria Clonaris's um, work. Again, an example of an important advocacy project. And she'll also be working on an exhibition um, based around uh, women artists who've been involved in making narrative works, particularly, but within the structural sphere of the co-op. That will be part of the 50th um, anniversaries of the co-op next year. So Charlotte Proctor um, is the collection um, manager at Lux, who looks after both the presentation and preservation of the Lux collection. But at the same time, she's also um, a member of the Sinanova Working Group, and she'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, we're delighted to have Mark Williams with us. He is the director of Circuit, that's a New York, New, oh, excuse me, a New Zealand <laughs> distribution agency. Very close. Uh, <laughs> and also worked 
for some years at the, the New Zealand Film Archive and has long-standing um, relationship to Lux here, where he worked for some time. And um, Mark will be talking very much about um, his project working with the archive and with the work of Joanna Paul, um, who I hope some of you will have a chance to see the programme this weekend. So, um, Maud, if we could start, start with you, and each of the speakers is going to give a short presentation, and then we'll follow that with discussion between ourselves and open it up to your thoughts. Well, thanks for the... Oh, well, that's a bit loud. Um, thanks for the introduction, Lucy, and thank you, everybody, for being here with us this morning. Um, so, as Lucy told you, I'm, gonna, I'm here to tell you about a research project that I have been working on um, around the um, practices of the women filmmakers at the London Filmmakers Co-op. Um, so, as you probably uh, know, the London Filmmakers Co-op was an artist-led organization with a cooperative structure that from the mid-60s to the mid-90s was the center of a vibrant filmmaking movement uh, which was characterized by a shared commitment to film experiment. And this alternative movement quickly became associated with the modernist exploration of, a, of film as film, the structural material approach to filmmaking, uh, which through the foregrounding of the material processes of film, intended to make viewers aware of and reflect on the phenomenological and the ideological conditions of uh, viewing. So the co-op was quite unique, both in terms of its collective and supportive nature. It was a bustling place where filmmakers could exchange ideas and technical skills, etc. cetera. Uh, but also of its self-reflexive concern with the uh, materiality of film. And I believe that the combination of this unique context and of the growing feminist consciousness on the part of the women filmmakers gave birth to remarkable ensembles of, of films, which for reasons that we will probably discuss later, have fallen through the cracks of both the history of experimental film and uh, feminist film scholarship. What is singular about these films, I think, is the way in which the filmmakers explored alternative conceptions of the body, subjectivity, history, but by thinking in and through, with, with and through material, and in relation to a structural analysis of the language of, uh, of cinema. So in so doing, they expanded in the sense that they both build on and against uh, the structural paradigm as it was defined by its most vocal advocates in the 60s and 70s. On the one hand, uh, these filmmakers understood that the language of structural film was its strict formalism and distanced rational approach could not accommodate uh, gender difference and make space for female subjectivity and desire. But on the other hand, they maintained an hands-on engagement with medium and process, as well as an acute awareness of the politics of representation. But in their films, the, the perceptual and material considerations of the, uh, sorry, the material and perceptual properties of cinema were not considered just for themselves, but in relation to their psychological, political, and symbolic uh, dimensions. So this is what I've tried to reflect in my research by, for instance, considering how the films of Marilyn Alford, 
Janet Elian or Sarah Puso examine the cinematic apparatus, but in its relationship to the construction of the self and the dynamics of self and other. Uh, another example would be how, um, in the films of Sandra Lahir or Nina Danino, the exploration of the materiality of film relates to an investigation of the materiality of the body. Um, in her Uranium Trilogy that meditates on the dangers of both nuclear culture and patriarchal slash technological, uh, what did I say? No. Nuclear energy and patriarchal culture, yes. She um, exposes the ravaging effects uh, on the Canadian landscapes and on the women's workers' bodies by both putting her own body at risk and by subjecting the film strip, so the skin of the film, to various erosive treatments as if it, has been ex it had been exposed to radiations. Um, in Nina Danino's work, the female body is absent from the screen, but it is expressed through the embodied camera movements, the constant oscillation between abstraction and, and figuration, and the rhythms and textures of the voice through which something connected to the maternal, to the body of the mother, makes itself heard. So the exploration of the body through a dip deep material engagement with film in the work of these two filmmakers, but also in the films of Sarah Pusson or Jane Parker, is particularly interesting from a contemporary perspective, um, given what has been described as a recent material or bodily turn in theoretical discourse. This shift towards materiality can be observed in both film theory, as in the work of Vivian Sobchak, Laura U. Marx, or Patricia McCormack, and in feminist theory. I mean, you know that there are many uh, feminist thinkers who are attempting to move beyond uh, discursive construction and to grapple with materiality. So I believe that showing and publicly discussing the work of the women filmmakers from the co-op today will create a productive dialogue between theory and practice across time. It will not only help us elaborate fresh critical frameworks for understanding these films, beyond both the modernist approach and the psychoanalytically based uh, feminist film theory, but also potentially offer new perspectives to both contemporary thinkers um, and filmmakers. Um, in this project, I have decided to present together uh, films by women filmmakers from the 70s to the mid-90s, which in a way um, goes against the dominant vision of the history of the co-op as clearly divided in two periods. The early times of the co-op, when filmmakers were engaged in, in, um, in um, structural material experimentation and when feminism was non-existent. And then a second period, starting in the late 70s, which saw the emergence of feminism and the return to more personal, poetic, or expressive forms of filmmaking. Already in the 70s, uh, filmmaker Anne-Louise Marg explored issues of autobiography, the passing of time, and memories in ways that prompted uh, feminist scholar Laura Mulvey to write, and I quote, a work brought to mind contemporary feminist reevaluation of diaries and memoirs, end of quote. And as Lucy Reynolds, here present, has argued in her own research, um, even the filmmakers whose work from the 1970s can be more readily associated with the structural model, just such as Jill Azeli or Annabelle Nicholson, 
maintained its subjective and embodied relationship with the material apparatus of cinema, which exceeded the definitions of modernist film practice. And their use of domestic objects and engagements with fleeting forms of subjectivity also anticipated some of the more openly feminist works of the 80s and 90s. And conversely, as I have briefly explained earlier, these <clears throat> later works from the 80s and 90s maintained links to the structural project while also engaging with self-inscription in film, giving voice to women's experiences, and exposing the mechanics of, um, of patriarchal power. So choosing to present works by women that span the entire period of the London Filmmakers Co-op allows to emphasize the shared history and the singularity of this ensemble of films that fused formal experimentation with more or less overt or conscious feminist politics. I believe it is important to do this now, not only to start correcting the historical invisibility to which these wonderful films have been consigned, but also because I think that they have much to contribute to current discussions about materiality in relation to film, gender, and subjectivity. Thanks very much, Maud. That um, gives a fantastic, I think, overview of your current research and also of the projects looking forward, the curatorial work that you're going to be doing. So with that in mind, um, I'll turn to Charlotte and tell us a little bit more about your work. And I think this will also be an, a good context thinking of circles to underline what you've been talking about too, Maud. Thank you, Lucy, and thank you for my fellow speakers and for your coming here today. Um, so I guess I'm, so I'm here on behalf as uh, one member of the Sinanova Working Group, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the history and the formation of circles and uh, uh, cinema of women, and which later became... Sinanova uh, and my relationship to that history as part of the working group. Um, it's, uh, I, I don't feel like I've, I'm in a place that I can represent that history as properly as I would like, um, as being someone that's only recently come to the project, but I guess it's kind of, that's part of what we're talking about, is this fragmented histories and kind of what we have in boxes and what we, and what we know from these films and what ha the little that has been written about uh, this organisations. Um, so Sinanova um, was formed in 1991 out of the merger of two feminist film distributors, uh, Circles and Cinema of Women. Um, I'm just going to talk briefly about how those two groups were formed. Um, I actually only recently found out that they were both formed out of a sort of, as far as I, I can gather from something that Felicity Sparrow, who's one of the... Uh, founders of circles, that, they, that both organisations came out of a sort of women's consciousness raising group at the Filmmakers Co-op, um, which I always knew this history with circles and uh, the co-op, but not that Cinema of Women has sort of had this overlap. Um, and um, Cinema of Women was actually formed as an offshoot from Cine Sisters, which was a women's filmmaking group. Um, this was in the early 70s, um, so in the, the height of the women's liberation movement. And there was... Uh, Sydney Sisters had actually also had members of the London Women's Film Group, who I recently just saw this amazing film called The Amazing Equal Pay Show, um, which was uh, like blown, blown me away that I didn't know about this film. Um, so yeah, there's all these kind of other links to other women's films groups that were working, and that move from 
from being women filmmakers to also being distributors of work and taking control in that way. Um, so particularly with Cinema of Women, these were women who were already working in film production um, sort of with leftist, left, in left kind of left politics, but already felt isolated even within that culture. Um, so came together to watch feminist films um, and discuss their own work and how they could distribute it. Um, the distribution focus of Cinema of Women initially seemed to be on sort of protests and overtly political documentaries, as well as later moving into um, sort of independent feminist feature films. Um, so, as I was saying, that Circles and Cinema of Women kind of they started in the same year. Um, the Circles a bit later, so I think there were some initial kind of concerns about the two coexisting. Um, but again, yeah, from something recently I read that C. Sparrow um, wrote, it was that although they shared like the same political approach um, in terms of collective working and kind of where they wanted these films to be seen, um, Cinema of Women had no interest in. Um, distributing some of the films that Circles were, some of the more experimental works. Um, so it seemed like the two should and could coexist together. Um, so I'm kind of going to now um, focus a bit more on, I mean, I've actually got slides of both, but the aims and objectives of the two organisations. Um, so Lucy was talking about um, the pulling out of the Film as Film exhibition um, from the uh, women artists that were involved with this um, and so sorry I don't know if it's the year this was 1979 um, when these both organisations were uh, formed um, and Liz Rose was the only filmmaker who was involved with the um, planning of this exhibition um, and so she decided to focus on the research and the history of women filmmaking um, and invited Felicity Sparrow to join her um, they focused on the work of Alice Guy Jermaine Dulac and Maya Deren and then they asked more women to join them um, in this research, but they just felt continually undermined by the rest of the exhibition team and uh, just a lack of respect for their research. So in the end, as uh, Lisa said, they withdrew their work um, and issued a statement, which I'm going to quote here, because I think the two kind of uh, Liz Rose quote and this collective quote is uh, really interesting together. Um, we made the decision not to carry on, not to continue working in a situation that was hostile and ultimately fruitless for the individual women involved. It's better that the historical research be published elsewhere and the work of contemporary wo women filmmakers, artists and critics be presented in the context where they are valued. Um, and again, going back to sort of things that have been said more recently by Felicity Sparrow is that she didn't want the kind of the, the history of circles to be always associated with this, what was kind of essentially mm -hmm. a negative event. Um, and that circles could never have arisen from just that one act. They'd been having these conversations for a long time, and it had always been this positive thing of women coming together to discuss kind of how they could how they could distribute their own work. Um, but I still think it's important to kind of present a context as a kind of catalyst of that move. Um, so yeah, I've got the aims and objectives up here, but I'm not sure how you can read them. Um, but basically the aims of Circles were to distribute women's films and videos, slide tapes and performance arts. So this is how it differed from cinema of women. They were much more interested in kind of all different types of filmmaking um, and artist work. Um, and they also um, wanted to have women-only screenings and uh, sort of conversations that were kind of inclusive and also introducing women that weren't in this kind of come from this background to the, these works. Um, 
any woman who was uh, had their work in circles had a part in the decision making. So it was that kind of collective. You were a member of circles, so you, you know, the policy making was your responsibility too. And then another key intent of circles was that the films were used for education. So they were used for not only within schools, but also within women's groups, community centres and trade unions, which again is the overlap with cinema of women. Um, and Circles also built on this research that um, Felicity Sparrow and Liz Rhodes had um, done into early women filmmakers. So part of the objectives of the organisation was not only to distribute their own work, but to bring this historic works back into distribution. Um, so the first touring package that um, Circles distributed was the, uh, included the work of Alice Gee and Jermaine Dulac alongside contemporary films by Liz Rhodes and Joanna Davis. Um, this included films that were made over a period of 70 years and suggested a commonality within the themes of these works. Um, and a quote from the catalogue is, to make explicit the links and fractures between the four films made by four women who live and work belong and belong to different places, but whose voices are uh, placed in similar constraints. Um, they also produced other successful touring programmes, the film of, films of Maya Darren in 1984 and Black Women in Invisibility in 1987. Um, I just kind of wanted to talk about that sort of early formation, sort of the ideas behind it. Um, and then I'm kind of in a point where I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what happened next. <laughs> so, and I guess that kind of relates to funding. And there was, you know, there's been a lot of research done into this in terms of sort of how independent distributors um, in the UK kind of survived undercuts or didn't survive. and. Basically, both organisations, Cinema of Women and Circles, had their funding drastically cut, and there was what I presume is the forced merger um, in 1991 to become Cinenova. Um, and this is, again, I'm, I know that Helen is here, who I haven't actually met, but <laughs> I should uh, was uh, involved with uh, Cinenova. Um, and I think that... Um, it was just the, pr the pressures that were put on the organisation to, to meet these sort of funding targets or, and to, to uh, produce films that would, you know, that would be sort of profitable kind of went against all the ideas that were originally sort of being the objectives of these organisations. Um, which, so yeah, kind of fast forward a bit, but like leaves us, took us to 2001 where the funding was completely cut for the organisation and since then has been run completely voluntarily. Um, and so at this point the collection of Cinenova is over 500 titles um, that include experimental film, narrative feature films, artist film and video, documentary and educational films that deal with really um, broad and overlapping themes of gender and sexuality, positional histories, uh, post-colonial studies, domestic and care work, and just, yeah, the relationships between those struggles. Um, I'm part of a working group that formed in 2010, which is currently made up of nine people who manage the business of Cinenova um, and continue to try to find different approaches to solving the issues of maintaining the collection. Um, I think I can hopefully speak for the uh, one of the uh, working group, Irene Revel is here, um, just to say that I think we all collectively uh, believe that the collection should continue to s distribute and not be taken in by an archive. Um, I think that would 
like limit access to the films. And I think I personally really believe in the idea of um, distribution as preservation. And the more that the work is seen, the more awareness there is of its existence, then its cultural importance is valued. Um, this has involved an ongoing project of digitizing the collection, um, which we've been lucky, despite us all being a volunteer sort of uh, group, um, we have had funding for sort of an intern, um, which has helped this along. Um, and there's and one of the main things of the working group has been sort of these multiple exhibitions and um, workshops that kind of continue question the collection, how we can kind of relate to it today. Um, just got an image. This is from an exhibition in uh, Vienna uh, that was involved with, um, where different sort of groups. Uh, so that's something I'm going to say, but we're all based kind of internationally. So that's one of the interesting things that a lot of the exhibitions have happened in um, out of London. Um, and different groups, sort of artist groups and archives and feminist groups and women's groups were invited to program this exhibition. Um, and um, yeah, we all live in different places, as I said. So it's London, New York, Berlin, Zurich, and California. Um, we aim to meet monthly by the internet to discuss the day-to-day -day work, project proposals, and ideas for the future of the organization. And we each take on the work that is possible from the place that we are. Um, and yeah, it's, we, um, so yeah, there's some more pictures. This is another picture from Vienna. This is a picture from um, Zurich that was doing a workshop with some undergraduate students. And then this is the most recent series that we're doing of, um, we've inviting contemporary artists to respond to works in the collection. So they have, they choose works, they kind of curate their own screening um, and then sort of have an explanation of why they've chosen that work. And this was the most recent one, um, was the artist Cara Tolmy, she made her own uh, screensaver <laughs> for, the, uh, for the event. Um, but I, yeah, I thought I'd just finish with saying a quote from a text that, um, so one of the other ongoing projects as the, with the working group is that, um, so we're all kind of from different backgrounds, again, sort of how these organizations started as artists, writers, and curators. And there's an ongoing text series in camera, um, Austria, um, that's being published on Cinenova. And I just wanted a quote from the end of, uh, by Emma Hedich and Louise Shelley, who are part of the working group and to explain the kind of role of the working group. The group is responsible to the film and video makers that Cinenova represents. Some of these makers are active and very much in dialogue with the working group. Some we have no contact with or contact information, for this is a large part of our ongoing work. The working group has had no part in the selection of the works. The selection was made over the course of the organization's history by different workers and consultation groups. We have, however, decided to commit to this work and try to assist in the distribution and preservation of the works in the collection. The working group shares a desire to see these works and to talk about them in the context of the cinema, <coughs> exhibition projects, and educational contexts. Thanks, Charlotte. Mm, lots, lots to think about there in relation to different strategies that can be used to give visibility to such an important collection or living collection, distribution collection. Mark, perhaps you'd like to tell us more about Joan Paul. Sure. Should we put up? <coughs> slide for Joanna. Which one do you want? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry I Shout can do if it. you wouldn't mind. Um, and one of the unnamed ones will be fine. Yeah, it's a nice kind of background. Get it on. Um, I don't know how you have to put it in. Sorry. 
Maybe you have to do it to recognise displays or... We have some technical assistance. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in. Um, I guess we could stick it in. Sorry. Put it in keynote. It's just um, how we can get that to show to be recognised. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could try with the little video, except um, towards the end, Stuart. Okay, uh, first of all, thanks very much, uh, Lucy, for your introduction and for the invitation to be part of the panel today. It's really an honour to be here and um, sort of the fulfilment of a sort of like 15-year ambition to share Jonah Paul's work with the world in a wider way. So Joanna Margaret Paul was born in New Zealand in 1945, and aside from a year spent in London in her 20s in the early 1970s, she spent most of her life in New Zealand, where she passed away in 2003. I'm not aware that she uh, visited the co-op during that time. Uh, between the early 1970s and the early 1980s, she made approximately 30 films, mostly on 8mm. Although she trained at our largest art school in our largest city, Auckland, she spent most of her life in small towns where her films focused on her immediate surroundings. Napkins fluttering on a clothesline, signalling the duties of motherhood, friends at home, the persistent presence of nature amidst the wear and tear of the urban settlement. Thinking of one of today's um, broader questions around why some practices get lost and others are saved, there are a number of reasons why Joanna's work might perhaps have been considered both behind and ahead of her time. Although we're talking today about her work as a filmmaker, she was a pioneer of interdisciplinary practice. She made films, she took photographs, she was a prolific painter, drawer, and she was a self-publisher. In the 1970s and 80s in New Zealand, such a practice might have been considered suspect, less serious perhaps than focusing on a given singular medium. As mentioned above, she was primarily known as a painter and her focus on drawing and watercolour still accrued to it at the time something of an aura of the feminine accomplishment of the 18th and 19th centuries. Another factor that perhaps might have uh, meant that her work had less profile was that the prevailing drive in the art world at that time was for a kind of internationalism, whereas her work was defiantly local. There were the challenges of life outside of art also. She had three children, one of whom, Imogen, died before the age of two and a broken marriage. On the other hand, some of her most memorable work drew on home and family. Peter Ireland's obituary noted that for most of her life she, quote, lived close to a bread line that was as profuse in bread as a banana republic is replete with bananas, unquote. She famously made do, whether it was with string or lentils, driving those close to her to the point of exasperation. Another quote here about Joanna's nature. Self-promotion, the grease of an upwardly mobile career, was anathema, her distaste for it amounting at times to actual physical revulsion. <laughs> so Joanna was very wary of careerism and um, was really driven most of all by the need for freedom to create her own work, for space to create her own work. And in her archive, um, there are thousands of paintings and drawings and negatives that are all uncatalogued. <coughs> so I was going to show something. Oh, there's an image of her work. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, sure, let's uh, show another work. This is one of Joanna's recurrent motifs, looking through a window. Um, and one of her most well-known films, Napkins, is virtually shot from the same point of view, but as a moving version of this still image. So I first encountered her work at the New Zealand Film Archives in the mid-2000s, where I worked for a decade, largely as a programmer curator. At the time I first encountered Joanna's films, they were a revelation, coming out of the media art-obsessed 1990s in New Zealand and Australia, where much-moving image art was driven by technology and the fervent possibilities of digital tools for art-making. Whereas the Joanna's films are woman irons a child's dress, people share food, and there are constant motifs of the window as a frame, the house as the place where the spirit resides. Very, very much felt very different. Thinking of the impact they made on me at the time and wondering why they seem to be so valued now in 2015, I am reminded of a comment by Laurie Anderson that I read in a recent interview with her. Speaking about the clamour of digital technologies and in the modern world, she noted, I want to be where I am. Having said that, within the everyday that Joanna's eye finds there is absence and transcendence. She dealt a lot, I think, with negative space, and she did, I think, look for that transcendent feeling in the everyday. <coughs> Making sense of Joanna's collection at the Film Archive was difficult. There were several versions of films, ambiguous attributions of films to titles, different versions. There was no money in the archive's budget for film-to-film -film transfers, but there were many attempts at film-to-digital transfers. Most of these were very dark, usually at the wrong speed. And in fact, that uh, has carried on until the past year where I, I got some transfers that were like two and a half times the speed of the film. Um, very frustrating. But anyway, to cut a long story short, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I managed to get the original films out of the archive into an independent digital transfer operator. The results are a revelation potentially changing the reading of Joanna's work. Films I thought were black and white are colour. <laughs> they are now at the correct speed. Details in the work previously unseen, such as the weave on a knitted jersey, are now visible. One of the major discoveries is that previous digital transfers have shown not the image shot by Joanna through the viewfinder of her Super 8 camera, but the full frame captured to film. So when you shoot through the camera, you see a certain image. But when the film was scanned, there's actually a larger image there. And that was what was being portrayed as Joanna's work. So uh, by reducing the image size of the 8mm scans by approximately 10%, suddenly we see the cropping and framing aesthetic of Joanna's still photography come to life. And the proof of the pudding, I suppose, was that we showed these scans to Joanna's sister, Jane Paul, who is an archivist as well. And She's someone who was in one of Joanna's films in the 1970s and has dealt with them for decades. And immediately she said, oh my goodness, suddenly these films make sense. We can, they actually, they look like her photographs. They do the things that she, she used to do. So the program on Sunday presents six of Joanna's films, digitally restored, but also six films by contemporary New Zealand artists. Each of the six artists was given a selection of Joanna's poems and asked to respond with a moving image work. Originally, um, so the idea around this was that I was very interested in uh, you know, highlighting Joanna's work, but I didn't want her to, see just, to be seen just as a kind of a historical kind of figure, if you like, because so many younger artists who'd seen her work were, were so very excited by it. So uh, choosing six artists to engage with the uh, wider um, aspects of her practice and deliver a new moving image work was a way of... of um, 
continuing the conversation on, I suppose, rather than just stopping her at a certain place in time. Okay, so my last point is that the uh, most amazing thing about Joanna's work since we began this, this project is that in the past year, she has become New Zealand's most widely exhibited artist. It's, it's actually amazing. I, um, I receive emails almost every second week from a public gallery, a university gallery. She's gained two dealers. Um, it's just absolutely extraordinary. And um, two people are working on a book about her as well. Uh, one of those people is Nova Paul, no relation, but one of the filmmakers we commissioned to make a work in response to Joanna's poetry. So um, it's been quite incredible. Uh, we have uh, the, so the program we're going to see on Sunday combines these these two programs. But we've also asked uh, Peter Todd, who curated the Margaret Tate survey, to curate a much fuller program of Joanna's works, which is available for touring as well. Um, the similarities seemed uh, very potent there, Margaret. And uh, Joanna both training at a large institution and, uh, and then moving to uh, the geographic margins, if you like, working across media. Um, so we're looking forward to that as well. Thanks very much, Mark. Well, I'm sure that you can all see a range of different, uh, you know, particularly different personal emphases, but at the same time a lot of um, common um, approaches to this question of how we might write um, women's experimental film histories in bringing it into a dialogue uh, with contemporary artists being a, a strong one. But Maud, maybe if I could just start with you. Um, you talk very eloquently about what drew you to the work of these artists. Um, so you've written a PhD around some of their work. Um, but what makes you feel strong? You still you'd like to curate programs um, around their work, and is that an advocacy, or do you want? Is there yeah. a sense to bring it to contemporary practitioners as well as scholars? Yes, I mean the uh, during my PhD, I start, I, I'm I'm an art historian, so I've discovered. I mean, I started by looking at moving image installation in the gallery. I'm French. I moved to the UK, and then I discovered this history of experimental film in Britain that I had that I wasn't aware of. And then I realized that I needed to I needed to acknowledge this history and create a dialogue between past and present uh, in, in my research. But then when I was done with the PhD, I saw that I needed to do something more expensive about the work of these women filmmakers. And I, as I said in my introduction, I felt that they were right in, in the middle, that they really were marginalized within both the history of, of uh, experimental film and the history of mm -hmm. feminist film scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so there was this group of films that I, I found fascinating and that I really didn't have a place, I felt. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's how this research uh, started. And, and I think also that most of, I can explain later if you want why I think it's been excluded from both, this, both these histories. But um, uh, also, it's been sometimes difficult for me to see the work. Um, and I think it's very important that those works are, are shown publicly. And most of the time, it's been the, it's mostly the filmmakers themselves that have been, that have had the initiative of showing their works. I'm thinking of Sarah Pusso, for instance, who organized in 2007 
uh, series of retrospective of, uh, of the work of six filmmakers um, called The Subjective Camera. But she is carrying this history, and I felt that, um, that it was actually interesting that I was an outsider and that maybe I could bring something else to the, to the discussion. Yeah, and I, I utterly agree. It feels like something I've always seen as a kind of double bind that many of these uh, extraordinary films and filmmakers are outside of the kind of, you know, something we've all brought up, the kind of that modernist. You know, you talked about the kind of geographic margins, but, you know, the kind of the margins of a certain kind of modernist paradigm, which they existed outside um, which was so prevalent at the at the core, but a cert, at a certain point, mm -hmm. should be kind of emphasising it was, you know, early seventies, but yeah. also that it was um, feminist film theory as well. Also, I mean, yes, this it. question of I think, it, of course, the question of the of the bias towards the modernist material concerns at the co-op is one of the reason why. Uh, I'm thinking of a text that um, that, Jack, that uh, Jackie Atfeld wrote in 2003 called um, uh, Expanded Cinema and Narrative. And she said that uh, the, mo most of the women's work uh, was going to be marginalized because it didn't fit, fit into the zeitgeist of the time, which was materiality and non-narrative. Mm. So, and, um, and that's also what the women filmmakers said in 1978 when they decided to withdraw from the film as film exhibit exhibition, but I think there's another reason, and it's that the historiographical work that has been done on the co-op has really focused on the 70s up mm, until now. Um, and so all the ex experiment, experimentations being done in the 80s and 90s have kind of been written out of history, and that's another reason why the work of the women filmmakers from the co-op is maybe less known than... than uh, those by the structural material filmmakers. But so, Charlotte, what what do you think in uh, particular is what's exciting younger practitioners that are curating these programs for you? I mean, what, for Cara and others, what is it that um, they're finding in the collection which is um, meaningful for them? Um, I think it's been really interesting because. Uh, yeah, so we've only so far. It's, yeah, it's been all sort of contemporary, uh, self-identified women um, who have been we've invited. But um, and I guess it's that I think it would be like maybe like the eccentricity of the collection because it has spanned all this time. So I was just thinking about a couple of the. I mean, I think yeah, like as I was saying, the issues, the <coughs> themes of the films, I think are all still things that are really relevant. Um, but it's that there's. Yeah, it's this collection that runs from 1912 to 2000. Um, or actually, we had a, a later film added. But um, the just the, the the fact that what I was saying about this program that was um, the first circle touring program, this interlinking between films that could be made 70 years before that they could still find this commonality. Um, so I think that's kind of part of what's exciting. So it, it comes back to what you were saying, more that it's. It's um, starting to explode those chrono chronological approaches, and that's excitement for them that they can take a film of Aliski mm -hmm. next to a, um, a film from a. Well, I guess the the collection goes up till the millennium, so. or yeah, when did? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. I think it's it's also an explosion of the boundaries between media. So, of course, with 
the, they both together film, video, performance, light tape projections, <coughs> which, uh, <coughs> which at the time was pretty new and rare to have this approach to this intermediality. And, and it might be one of the reasons why women's work have been uh, marginalized as well, because they, from the beginning, kind of mixed all these media and didn't really fit into medium specificity. Which is what you were saying, Mark, yeah. wasn't you? That that was a problem for Joanna. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the art school she went to at the time had a painting department, sculpture, photography department, but now they've done away with all of those departments altogether. But at the time, you know, it was all about you're a painter, you're a sculptor, you're a photographer, mm -hmm. whereas she, you know, was ahead of that curve. So, yeah. And as I was also thinking when you were talking about her work about a particular um, writing by Guy Brett around the idea of, of women, and he's writing particularly specifically around Green, Green and Common and the work that women were doing there and saying that they didn't make a distinction between their lives and art, you know, that sense of you go to your studio somewhere else where you make your art and your life is over here. And so from what you're saying that her work very much those boundaries are very very porous for her and again perhaps that was a reason why this was not seen as you know um, work of a kind of uh, I don't know quite know how I'm going to put it but work which had a certain gravitas to it perhaps. absolutely yeah she integrated her everyday life into her films um, I mean you know there's a film she makes which is just of um, a woman ironing a child's top you know, and it's a beautiful thing that just shows you like the experience and the practice and the uh, just dexterity of the activity and the care and attention. Um, as I mentioned, there's you know the napkins on, uh, hanging on the washing line outside. She was also involved with the uh, women's women's <coughs> movement in New Zealand mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So there's a film called Sisterhood, which is shot inside a house which was uh, women only, and. Um, you know, she chronicles just the domestic activities of the people living there. So, yeah, absolutely integrated. I mean, and that's an interesting question about the woman-only question, in a sense that I wonder also in some way if that hasn't, when we reached a more contemporary period of the 90s or the noughties, that people have somehow not been able to understand that, particularly thinking of uh, singing over in circles. Why did it have to be just women? Artists, why you want to do a show of just of just women? You know, I come up against it myself all the time. Um, how do we defend that? I mean, do you, you know, thinking of uh, in that, you know, the objectives of uh, circles there, they they had a, a section, didn't they, on women only mm. and, and using those kind of methodologies? Yeah, I mean, especially looking at it now. Sinanova, um, it's complicated because there's filmmakers in the collection who now don't identify as women. Um, and I feel like now to have a conversation about women-only screenings is a different thing because I think that, sh you know, should include trans people or, you know, gender non-conforming people because I don't feel like that's, it's not, the, the issue has kind of changed. Um, but I do understand why that was necessary at the time. Um, it's kind of interesting what Maud was saying about the, the, the slide tape. I was reading that Felicity Farad said the men were very jealous of circles because there was no one else that would actually distribute the work that, that didn't fit into sort of film distributors. So it's kind of interesting that they 
reach that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> always jealous. <laughs> and I, one thing that was striking me as well is you managed to find, Mark, um, Joanna's work in the archive. Had there been any attempts to show it? How did you come across it? Was it just, you know, uh, because you happened to be working in the archive that you found it? More or less. I mean, I just clicked on the category marked experimental and then I found, well, well there's, you know, X amount of films, so I just basically started watching them. Um, I mean, some of your work was shown. It was known. Um, but, yeah, it was primarily by having that behind-the-scenes access. And actually, one of the other um, strands of women's experimental filmmaking that I found uh, was from the 1930s and just categorised as amateur. And there's probably three or four... New Zealand filmmakers from that period who I think could probably be reclassified in another, another context. So, um, yeah, it's very tricky, the institutional framing of these works. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that across, you know, you know this continues to be, um, I've written down here, why no institutional advocacy? Because this is something, I mean, in a way, you've got a fantastic working group for Sinning over here, but... Cine Nova is housed um, through the Lux, and the Lux give a lot of support to to trying to find a home for Cine Nova. But this extraordinary collection is in boxes. You know why is that? But at the same time, that that is a desperate situation in some ways. But on the other hand, you're also quite clear that you don't want it to be subsumed into a university. So that's a kind of double-edged dilemma there. Yeah, which must be something that, you know, looking at Irene too, that you, that you discuss. Yeah, I mean, I guess on a personal note, that's kind of my background is working with archives and especially in the university archive, um, a very uh, high-tech uh, archive for Stanley Kubrick um, <laughs> was my last job. And uh, so <laughs> I'm kind of, yeah, comparing those, the, the uh, preservation sort of care that goes to his notebooks. <laughs> Is there any films. preservation care that you're able to do for, for the Cine Nova collection? Well, I guess that's what I was sort of saying in terms of the digitisation is mm. kind of... I mean, I don't know about in terms of the paper documents sort of where we could see that, but I think that, yeah, I think we all sort of believe it should stay together, um, but it needs to be accessible and it isn't, so that's kind of the main problem, um, you know. It's not even on shelves, so it's <laughs> sad. And I mean, Mark, did you also have to make a case for why you know you you were able to do incredible preservation work on Joanna's work? Did you have to make a very strong case to the archive to do that? Well, I mean, Joanna's Joanna's sister Jane works there, so ah, was a colleague for ten years. Yeah. So um, you know, she's a, um, a collaborator, if you like. Um, I mean, the, the archive have retransferred them in recent times, but as I say, they did them at two and a half times the wrong speed, and we spent months trying to speed correct them. We did mathematical calculations, and in one film you can see Joanna reflected in a window, and we looked at her camera, and it's like, okay, that's a certain type of camera that can shoot at 16 or 18, or maybe some sort of frame, so we'll try these calculations. Um, in the end, going private was the most necessary thing to do. Yeah. And Maud, I think also there's a question of where do you cite these screenings? Does that make a difference? Because 
often it may be in small spaces in Vienna or it may be workshops, but at the same time, do you think it's important that we try and bring some of this work to institutional spaces and, and therefore to, yes, I, to bigger notice? Yes, I do. I think it's important that the work is, is seen by uh, as many people as possible. And I remember in the 70s, Malcolm Legrais writing this text about one, him wanting Tate to not only collect uh, works, but also to organize regular screenings mm -hmm. uh, of films. And really, these films are in between. They're, they're in between uh, art history and film history, and, and I, their, their interest in materiality relates to, I don't know, a painter's interest in materiality as well. So I think the museum is a good place for these films to be preserved and shown, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and because I think they really deserve attention. The, the more visible the museum, uh, the, the better. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the Jeux de Pomme, have they been um, very supportive of your project to, to work with um, Katerina. Maria and Katerina? They, they actually approached me. So they had, um, they had started a series on women filmmakers, like retrospective on, on women filmmakers. They did one on Baba Hama that actually came to Tate mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, then they did one on uh, Yvonne Reyna and Katerina and Maria's retrospective is going to be the third one. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that I was involved. We were working on together on other projects. And so they knew that I was doing research on women filmmaking uh, in London. And they knew that Katerina and Maria had links to the cool hop and mm -hmm. that they were actually represented by circles. And so they asked me if I wanted to work with them. And I, I did really want to work with them. So, so. Uh, and we are in the same, we are also trying to, and that's maybe another, we're also trying to, Maria and Katerina were active in, in expanded cinema. They did pieces that combine multi-screen projections and performative elements. Um, and so we are trying to both show the films and we work on restoration, I don't, but she does with the CNC actually on restorations of films, but we're also trying to think together about how to reenact some of these expanded cinema mm -hmm. works. So there's also this question of, um, of the, the gallery as but maybe the ideal, the, again, a, a good space to do that. And actually thinking again about your question about the museum, is the museum a good place to mm -hmm. show these works? In, in the UK, uh, publicly funded galleries such as the ICA, the Arnolfini, et cetera, et cetera, they were all and they showed these expanded cinema events mm -hmm. in the 70s. So this, it happened before. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. kind of. Um, we need to make a case for it to happen again. Uh, yes, based on the history. I think it's very good to look at the history, so mm -hmm. that it happened in the history, and then try to make a case for it. Yeah. And um, you're, uh, you're going to be touring uh, Joanna's work. Is that going to go um, international? We hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I've asked Peter Todd to curate a program of her work. Mm. He's written an essay. Great. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a book coming out. But I think uh, talking about the, whether institutions can support the dissemination of this work um, and the preservation of it, for us, what's emerging as a key factor is the market. Um, mm. Because Joanna is now so popular mm. um, and the dealers are clamouring. Um, the family has been approached by dealers and they're very, very worried about what that might 
mean in terms of restricting circulation of the works, but at the same time, the dealer intervention means that there is now funding support for striking prints of Joanna's works, whereas there hasn't been up till this point. So um, that's the balance we're working through. It's an interesting dilemma, but also an important reality to, to address. I don't know if that's something that's come up for, for either of you um, in your research. Uh, I think the, the, way, the way I would, I would think about this question is that some of the filmmakers are sometimes um, worried to show their work in museums now because they very easily associate the market and the museum. Like there's a sense that they were working really on the margins of both film history, of both for the film world and the art world. And so there's a sense, it, there's a, they have a sense that they are being recuperated mm -hmm. in a way and that they, the, the work kind of loses its criticality by being recuperated by the institution. Mm -hmm. But I think it is because of this connection that is not absolutely obvious. Of course, there are connections that don't want to be naive, but between the market and the, and the, and the museum. Mm. I think the museum can have a role that's very clearly distinct from the market, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think we need to make that clear to the, to the filmmakers we are working with. But in the case of Maria and Katerina, for instance, they very early, on worked with museums. They had a, a, a retrospective at the Centre Pompidou in the 80s, which was very early for mm -hmm. um, But I see that a lot, this confusion between museum and, and, and market, which, mm -hmm. uh, which then makes it difficult to convince that it's not a reappropriation and that the work doesn't lose its criticality in its new context. Have you come across that at all, Charlotte? Um, well, I was, I was thinking of, I guess, so when the working group was first formed, that was kind of in response to um, the opportunity to do this uh, large exhibition at the showroom gallery. Um, and I, I think I wasn't part of the working group at this point, but I think there were a lot of questions about being within an institution like that and how, and how to navigate that, especially with some of the, you know, the films in the, in the collection being so sort of political. But, think, I mean, I don't know, from my knowledge and experience of the showroom, having such a strong education department that works sort of with community groups, that's quite sort of, I think, not in an outreach way, but actually like engagement, involvement, and having, you know, that sort of broad range kind of keeps it still, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> current. Yeah. Um, and connected to perhaps groups that maybe a museum is, is not really reaching yeah. in the same way. I think talking of reaching the same way, yes, it's time for questions. And Ed already has his hand up. Ed. Just to finish this video, really, it's really great. Thank you so, so much information. But I'm so glad that that came out from all of the speakers. I mean, you mentioned this weariness and careerism at the time, which was working. And, um, and I'm really, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to think through like how you, how how you represent feminist work in the institutional context in a in a and to hold on to this idea of feminism. So it doesn't become, the, the, like you, so you don't undo what Liz Rhodes was saying in a way, and you somehow don't perpetuate these patriarchal models of exhibition and, and distribution, but you somehow do something that is innately embodies like feminism for programmers or for curators, like, like ways that, the, that, this can, that, that this can live on. And, and I think I'm really interested in the now showing um, distribution preservation model that Simnova's taken up, and I, as a, 
way of continuing this, like much more, I guess, that this idea of like collective consciousness raising in, in relation to film screening, which becomes discursive and also intergenerational, and draws these kind of temporal links between histories, uh, which I think is a potential way of like working in, within this history. And I wonder if, in a practical sense, like how you, how you, for example, uh, Maud work, would think about work with institutions and not becoming and perpetuating these models of like of like single histories that become very like solid in a way. How do you mm -hmm. how do you how do you hold on to feminism in an institution? Yeah. Uh, on the question of uh, of the collectivity, I think when we were talking about women only screenings, uh, there is a difference between the women only meaning only women could attend the screenings and uh, women only in terms of we are showing only works by women filmmakers, mm -hmm. and the idea behind the women only. So at the circles, the only women could attend the screenings. And it was about this, as you say, creating a collective, uh, having a space for discussion and sort of consciousness raising. And I think that's something that's important in the context of the museum too, to always have as much as possible to have the filmmaker talk and engage with the audience and creating, creating discussions. Uh, for instance, at the Jeux de Paume, um, when they did the, the exhibition, the Barbara Hama um, exhibition, Barbara Hama could only be there two days. Um, and with Katerina, it, it was really important that she was there for each session and that we tried to think about other women or, or men uh, to discuss the work. I mean, that they were, there was going to be discussion around the work. And then the solidifying, so that's one part of, uh, of the question, and then the solidifying of, uh, of history. Um, I, it's, a very, it's a very difficult question. Yes, you do, each time that you make a gesture, you do solidify in a way, but you expect that other people are gonna take up what you've done and, and, and elaborate on this. And, and I think there is a community of scholars who are interested in, in feminist film that might uh, respond uh, and, and in producing other, other events and, and things. And I also hope that there will be parallel. I mean, I think it's interesting also to try to create parallel with the theory. I talked about in my introduction about the link with a sort of return to materiality and interest in the body in, in feminist theory and in film theory. And I think it, it's interesting as well to try and make these connections to create, again, new discussions out of the work. So it's not only about showing the work and, and, and creating this fixed history, but it's trying to animate this history as much as possible by creating dialogues. And, and I think I also what you're talking about, too, is the kind of almost auteurist nature, isn't you, of these uh, focus on particular um, artists' names, which is follows a kind of very much a, a kind of patriarchal pattern, which was what Circles was strategizing in a sense against coming out of the, the, the women's liberation movement of the 70s. And it's how, I think you're right, how, how to hold on to that. But at the same time, um, there is no doubt, I remember very clearly the difference that Vivian Dix retrospective, well, it wasn't entirely retrospective, of course she was there showing recent work too, and she's showing it the first, here at the festival as well. Um, the difference that that made to young artists, male and mm. as well as female, seeing that work, who'd had no access to it before. So it is a, a kind of finding a balance, perhaps. But then Mark, you're, you're, you've completely 
I don't know how to say this without sounding. Like, it's just interesting because of this model that that you're adopting with like a book, a, a marketplace, like really taking, like really putting this this like woman who specifically said she's wearing a careerism into this into the throes of this marketplace, which sounds so alien to what everything she was about. In order to preserve her history, you're also somehow there, there's a sense to me that you might lose that that. It's what Charlotte referenced about this tension between like yes, it's in boxes, but at least it's not in archives. So how do you how do you manage that? Do you know what I mean? Well, I don't just say throw it to the marketplace. It's about involving the family as well, and they have quite you know lengthy discussions, and there have been a lot of debates among family members about selling uh, her other work, like her paintings, for example. Some of her sons absolutely refuse, think that the painting should not be sold under any circumstances. You know, and they're very angry about the marketplace being in there. With the films, I mean, it's a you know a reproducible item, and her archive is in. You know, it needs it needs a lot of attention. So, the dilemmas are outlined pretty clearly to the family, uh, to the representative, which is Jane, her sister, the film archivist, and we we work through them. Um, actually, one of the things that I'm thinking about doing, which is kind of uh, monolithic. Um, is founding an award in her name, kind of like the Jarman Award, but the Joanna Paul Award. So every year there'll be a certain amount of money to a filmmaker to make a film work. So, I mean, that's sort of harking back to that male model of like, you know, sticking someone on a plinth, isn't it, in a big name, mm-hmm. um, casting them in bronze or whatever. But, you know, at the same time, it kind of reminds people about the kind of values that were circulating around her work, and it kind of actually provokes us to not lose sight of those sort of discussions. That's the main thing. Um, I mean, you just got to treat with sensitivity, I suppose, and bring in people who, who knew her and, um, yeah, treat with sensitivity. <laughs> Thank you. As a comp- Thank you for it. Yeah. Thanks, Hedna. We've got a question here. The mic's coming your way. Thank you. Maud, I was very interested in the discussion about the 70s and how structuralism itself was a kind of negation of the materiality of the work that women were doing. And I'd, I'd really appreciate a kind of explanation of how it clashed, because there is a kind of predominance of male filmmakers in structuralism, as we all know, and how they, they didn't include women as part of their work method or their approach to the ideals of structuralism. How did that division occur? And that's a very important turning point because at the same time as, as the structuralists were beginning to make very long and very powerful films and statements, um, experimental films themselves were becoming more accepted, more recognized within the art world as a form of expression. Uh, up to that time, there, there hadn't been that kind of attention. So it seems very critical as a period in history, in the creative history of, of experimental film, where that division, in a way, separates one group from another. So if you could just yes. give me an idea, or, or at least give us a sense of what were the tenets of that approach in terms of structuralism, how did it exclude women, and how in a sense, they weren't in, in, you know, included within the package of that whole movement of experimental films at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, a, it's an ambivalent. Um, I talked about the women filmmakers expanding 
the structural paradigm, so going both building on and against the structural paradigm. And I think that, um, um, yes, the, the, the focus on material concerns was detrimental to women, but at the same time, they took a lot from the structural, from the structural project. And there is this very serious engagement with materiality, uh, this self, this reflexiveness and, and awareness of the politics of representation that comes from this period of structural material filmmaking. So I, and there were women, there were women like Annabelle Nicholson or Liz Rhodes or, or Jill Azeli working at the time in the 70s in the context of structural material film and, and and, and, and Marilyn Alford as well, but Peter Gila has written about Marilyn Alford. Um, so they were, and they were, very, they were integrated. I don't think they felt marginal within the material structural context, but their work went beyond this paradigm. And that's what maybe Lucy could talk about better than I do, because that's what you've written about. But uh, It's what I write about and, and what I grapple with, um, because I do think looking more deeply, and I'm looking at, but well, I look at, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, I'm almost trying to go back to the beginning to the, I don't know, the origin myth and trying to, to work out if there really is a, you know, if I'm projecting, and that's the other thing, I think a question that perhaps we all, particularly as scholars, take, what are we projecting on this? What as a feminist am I projecting onto this situation? You know, if you speak to them, if you speak to maybe Nina Danino, you get a different uh, opinion from perhaps Annabelle Nicholson, but they said, you know, we work, all work together well, but then if you start to unpick it, there's a sense that there's certain sorts of work which have been perhaps, and Sally Potter's talked about this, uh, slightly dismissed, and it comes back almost more to a, a broader, from what I'm picking up in my research, a broader modernist question, um, mm -hmm. that um, there's certain sort of work which is seen as a bit messy, it's a bit mm. marginal, it doesn't, don't quite know how to assimilate it into the, <clears throat> the canon of what is acceptable at a, at a given time um, I mean I think Joyce Whalen's another interesting example of that, she's had quite a lot of visibility but that came through her work being advocated later on and if you think of her as um, <clears throat> in relation to her peers such as Hollis Frampton or um, uh, Michael Snow, her work is quite playful, quite elliptical. So I wonder if, I think you're absolutely right to say at the time this was a key moment where um, experimental film or artists working with film was getting a lot more visibility, but perhaps visibility for a certain sort of formalist work. <laughs> so not necessarily coming just from Malcolm the Grice or from these, if you like, voice pieces for structural film, but perhaps more from widely from the milieu. I mean, that's the question. I mean, don't, Ruby Rich saw it as the... Um, she saw mainstream cinema as the cinema of the fathers and experimental film as the cinema of the sons. I mean, she connected the two quite clearly. Um, but sorry, Maud, you were... No, you mentioned that. I was going to say that, that the fact that uh, Malcolm Le Grice and Peter Guido really produced a, a lot of writing 
uh, and then and they kind of created the foundation, the theoretical foundation for structural materialism. And they wrote outside of the co-op in film criticism, and they wrote in screen, and so they became the voice of the co-op. So I think, I mean, of course, there's this. There's also there's also why structural materialism might have become uh, as central mm. uh, as uh, as it is because they were because they. And maybe it's something that we don't, we do let, well, I don't want to generalize, but maybe women uh, maybe talk less <laughs> in a way about their work. And so, and so they were doing, and there was a really physical engagement with the material that was taking place in the work, but they weren't theorizing so much about what they were doing. Um, and then what remains from the outside is the theorizing. Which is perhaps why circles is such an important model of we're not able perhaps to to voice through these particular channels or these par paradigmatic channels of modernism however collectively coming through the empowerment we found in consciousness raising groups through those infrastructures and systems um, we feel more able to uh, create the sort of modes of distribution and understanding of work that, that is meaningful for us. I don't know if that's what you, you've encountered. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's how I work in general. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of what I, something I'm interested in and involved in working in things collaboratively, like, you know, and that's a, sort of what I guess I think it partly became the demise of Sidonova. They were forced to have a hierarchical structure to survive. Um, and so coming back to the working group, that's, you know, we all have equal parts in, in how it, it works, <laughs> or, or doesn't, in some cases. Mark, do you have anything to add? To no. <laughs> Just one. How did, uh, how did this lady, scientist you mentioned, including... Uh, how did this lady... I don't think it's... Is that switched on? Oh yeah, I think it's better. Yeah, yeah. How did they support themselves financially, including Joan, throughout their life of while they were working? Uh, well, she lived. She lived in you know poverty more or less. She had the odd um, artist residency. Like she had, for example, a, a one year long residency associated with the university, which paid her a lecturer's salary. Um, her husband was a very successful New Zealand painter as well. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure what she, she did to, to earn a crust, but I mean, uh, she, wasn't, she avoided it as much as possible, um, as far as I know. But she must have had some income. You've got to pay for at least string and lentils, yeah. And the others? Um, my knowledge of the early days of circus, I think, Quite a lot of them. Well, I guess if they had small grants for run the running of the organisation, but they did sort of some did sectarial work, sort of like temp work around it. Um, and and I guess oh, I don't know. This and I guess like having a space was a lot cheaper. So if they were kind of taking on, you know, if they were doing the work collectively because they wanted to, and then the money from hires was going back into the organisation and to the artists. So if you were an artist that was a member, you were getting paid for the distribution of your work and also the money was going into the organisation. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. That changed, obviously, when, you know, like funding, the small grants would get cut and then, you know, rent gets higher and how do you kind of yeah, have a building? Yeah, Super 8 film is very expensive. I mean, the medium they use is... Now, yeah. It wasn't so no. expensive then. And video was, yeah, so I guess. And they were, they were also teaching. Uh, mm. Sometimes they were editing, doing editing work for other filmmakers. So they were doing all these kind of uh, side jobs. Like I know that Nina Danino, for instance, worked, edited some of Laura Mulvey's film, which is uh, uh, interesting for the connections between what we called feminist counter cinema and the work from the women at the co-op. So they were doing, they were doing... So we might say get, getting by. Yeah. Um, perhaps in a way people still do. Kate, you, you perhaps yeah, want to, start to um, add to that there. Well, it was not so much that. Uh, I wanted to thank you all for your wonderful contributions to this history, but to point out that um, we've been talking about the film co-op, uh, what was... Um, what is now part of Lux, but the other part was London Video Arts, mm. and there were a lot of women video makers working collectively. Mm. Um, it is a parallel history, and it is a much neglected history mm. of that period, and I would like to put that forward as something that you all need to remember as well. Well yeah. said. Actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not a... But in my PhD, I looked at the history of, uh, of uh, LVA, and um, and it is something that I'm really interested in. So I'm aware of this, uh, of this but it's... it's uh, I think it'd be Patty Gal Holmes just wrote, just wrote a book on the history of the co-op in the 70s, and she says she advocates at the end in her conclusion for a history that's medium specific uh, to show the different, when we look at moving image installation today, to show that there were different gene possible genealogies. Mm -hmm. And so she took care of the, of the took care. I mean, she wrote about uh, the film and, and but we should write about video. Kate Elfs is writing about video. Um, Was there, Kate, much crossover between what was showing th or coming up through LVA and um, circles at all, which was... There was a bit of crossover yeah. with people like Tina Keane um, and there was a bit of a crossover with the Musicians Collective and mm. with the Film Co-op, but they were separate and specific organisations. Um, yeah, I think one of the problems is that um, it was less theorised space mm. and there was less contemporary writing about it, there's mm. retrospective writing, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean to say that there wasn't a kind of critical base to it because it was very much in that same mm. model of integrated practice of making, debating, screening, uh, re-examining. And the day-to-day -day practice of running an organization was done on a mostly voluntary basis uh, with a lot of women involved in it. And do you think the fact that you did have almost these media separations between the co-op being film or the LVA with video has created an, well, an issue now that you're now having to point out that you know the spotlight goes on to one particular organization and therefore leaves others in the dark? in terms of contemporary scholarship? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think uh, circles accounts for some of it, but not for all of it. Mm. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's a big, big missing yes. chunk. Yes. Well, well, raised. Everybody hearing that, I hope. You know, this is there's so much writing, and there's so much that needs to be done. You know, it's 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 all urgent. And there's another hand over, over here. Um, I guess just following on that question, whether uh, there's a sense maybe that um, the figures who did more or less write a version of their own history as it was happening, for example, I'm thinking of Gadal or Le Grace, um, do you think that from the perspective of the present, that in some ways that work remains more closed within those histories versus um, the women's work, which is in some ways more... It, it's sort of not fixed <laughs> or wasn't fixed at the time. And so I think it in some ways feels a little more free from the baggage of, that, of those histories. I'm just wondering if that is a thought that resonates at all. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I entirely agree. I entirely agree with that. I think there's a, um, yeah, there's a, the freedom that, um, that we can now make connections I mean, I can't. I can't say better than you than you, than you said it. So yes, I do. I do agree. Uh, there is a this structural material is very approach is kind of very, very clearly identified. But there's a lot of things that were happening around self inscription, the subject, and the subject in relation to materiality, that um, that goes far beyond the limits of the of the of the structural material model, and that resonates really with many works today and with many theoretical developments today. And so I, I, I think that, yeah, gives it gives it. Um. In New Zealand, we haven't even begun to tell the history of New Zealand experimental film, so we haven't even managed to tell it with any discernible bias yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I think carrying on from that point, um, Kate Elwes has this, I'm going to paraphrase her, she's made this quote about women and video in the early 70s and how it was free from the baggage of, of patriarchy. So it was this... It was this new medium to which they could then like ascribe their identity into, which I think is a really important way to look at video and also think about histories. But I wonder if there's something about, I mean, Kate and I were talking as a group beforehand in the seminar about um, why, like, why video not being as maybe um, as as easily archived or remembered or historicized or theorized. And I think at the time, video wasn't like quote unquote taken seriously, and so the like the double quote unquote negative of women and video made it even less important at the time as something that people would, 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 would sort of canonise. But then I also wonder, Charlotte, as an archivist, if you could have that happen for a second, maybe, to think about video in terms of just, and history is like, obviously, film's been around much longer than video has, so it's still, still a fairly new medium in relation to history, but also it's a much, it's a much harder, is it a much harder medium to archive? Like, what is the relationship to video in archives more generally, I think? Is it just more, is it more difficult? Um, yes. I should also say I'm not qualified artist. <laughs> In my eyes, you are. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, like video, I was going to mention that actually is kind of one of the tricky things about the Cinenova collection is so much of it is on umatic tape. Um, and uh, and it's, I mean, I've had the experience of digitizing something and slowly watching a tape die. It's like <laughs> really depressing <laughs> thing to see happen. Um, although I have learned new skills for cleaning uh, decks, so I feel like I'm, you know, need things to approach. Um, but um, 
yeah, I mean, I'm, again, this is all sort of like stuff I'm learning about, but if video is like a really difficult thing to preserve, and I think, and and film is sort of seen as the ultimate preservation. So there's even with certain works like film, it's been uh, video is being preserved now on film, um, but I can't see that point where that's going to be happening for Cinenova, You know, like with works that people already don't kind of care enough about that they're going to have that life in terms of and I suppose also and something which is is Ed's work um, of course is for consciousness raising groups for the use of video in a workshop capacity again goes back to that question of is this really art that we should be preserving you know in a sense mm. it's not given the serious attention I'm sure you would say that that it should I don't know if that's something that's you found has come up in the collection Sininova. oh do you mean in terms of work that you think it was meant to be sort of yeah, which was more um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a it's it's a really as I said, it's like a it's a uh, I don't even know the word to describe it. It's a very unusual collection because of you know the different people that were involved with it. Um, but also, you know, that's what's so interesting about it is it's the collection together, and that's why you know the fact that some works are here being looked after more than works that are decaying in a box um, is really sad to me because I think that's what makes it so interesting is that it's this history of women's filmmaking and video making that's you know I do think that the works are independently interesting but it is that kind of collection as a whole yeah you're right it's in a sense it's not a history of in the way that you have with Jana's work of it being a specific person or the way that you're mapping it almost through kind of theoretical um, discussion and concerns, but it, it's about um, showing us an example of a particular model of how we might rethink how how women working with film or video can, or tape slide or whatever it might be can be represented um, in in a way which um, doesn't isn't reductive that you know it moves away from patriarchal models. Um, that's what's very exciting about it. But um, I shouldn't be talking. Who, any more questions? Yes, on Libby. Is on. Oh, <laughs> it is now. Um, just in terms of uh, following on from the ideas of preservation, in terms of Cine Nova, um, I wanted to ask in terms of. Um, in terms of budget um, and digitizing, um, how do these discussions come about in terms of prioritizing what gets digitized and what gets left behind? <laughs> um, so in my experience in the time that I've been involved, it's never been based on, like, because we don't have a budget. I mean, other than, as we were saying, that we do currently have um, a paid uh, member of staff who is focusing on that. Um, but that's really recent. And through my involvement, it was coming to what used to be the office, which was in the back of an artist's studio, um, is, was just picking up things and being like, oh, that looks interesting, looking it up in the catalogue. And it wasn't like, oh, this looks like it should be preserved. This is just like, oh, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> like, I can watch it. Um, sorry to interrupt. No, um, more in terms of um, the personal interests of just whoever was making these digitizations on 
whichever day. Right, yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, and which I guess in a way could be problematic, but the aim isn't to ever, like, to leave anything behind, I guess. And unfortunately, we don't know the state of a tape until you put it, you know, in the player, so I don't know, like, yeah, it's not, it's not meant to be sort of hierarchical in that sense. Yeah, of I mean, it sounds, uh, it sounds like much more of a kind of organic approach, just... Um, uh, I suppose it's kind of quite individualistic in one way, but in another way, it's um, it's almost quite random because whoever is making these these um, digital copies um, is bringing you know their kind of experience and their interests and oh this looks interesting yeah. I'll put this in the umatic and yeah. and do it or or if there's been requests for screenings of things so I guess that's kind of the the other impetus to digitise something, so if something's been... But, you know, a lot of the supposedly, yeah, the more important works have already been done or have been given to us by the filmmakers in that form. So it's... Yeah, I mean, I I would just sometimes just go through the alphabet. Like, it wasn't... <laughs> it was just, you know... But I don't know. But I know what you, you're saying about this idea of, yeah, individualistic. I guess that's the good thing about having lots of different people coming to it. Um, yeah, if that answers your question. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Any other? Yes. Um, I was just wondering, outside of... Well, the, on the comment of um, distribution as preservation, uh, the idea, obviously, that seeing these films is really, really important for young female filmmakers now. Um, how you go about doing that, how you go about showing these films to young women who might be aspiring to make stuff. I mean, you mentioned the foundation that you might be making. Um, I imagine that's for... The award, yeah. For, yeah, the awards. So that's for young f filmmakers. You tell me a little bit more about how you guys might be doing that. Well, that award would be for, for male or female filmmakers. It wouldn't just be for female filmmakers. Um, in terms of making uh, these works available to young female filmmakers, uh, well, one, we recently had our annual symposium in, in Auckland and uh, I invited um, a contemporary artist, a contemporary curator, two contemporary curators, all female, to talk to Joanna's work and there was varying degrees of expertise in having worked with her from the 1970s to the present. And so, I guess we're, we're you know, women's voices are framing her work. Um, so that's one thing, and of course, just the spread of her work and, and shows uh, the fact that this book is being made by two, uh, a female filmmaker slash academic and another female academic, means that they're, I guess, again, it's that sensitivity that they're sensitive to what's actually in the work, and um, they're the voices who are helping articulate it. Um. Did you two also want to come back on that question? Um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, well, I guess from the work of the working group, the work of the working group, that's clumsy, um, has, yeah, I mean, it's the, the working group is made up of um, mostly, like, women artists. Um, and then the programme that we've been doing has... Those have been the people who've invited so far, but I don't think it is, it's going to just be women. Um, there's, it's kind of, I guess, people come from more like queer feminist perspective, regardless of gender. Um, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing I think when you said that, I was thinking about we just did this workshop in um, Zurich, and I was that was more like I was like, oh, I really do think this is like things that should be in education, like even on a basic level, just film history, um, and that's kind of going back to the uh, Alice Gee stuff, the fact that she's still like a friend of mine, studies studied film, and she was never mentioned um, with the Lumiere brothers and Melio. So. I don't know, I do think that's quite important, like how we can have it sort of, you know, yeah, in education. Maud, did you say anything you wanted to add? Oh, well, um, not really, I don't, uh, it's a bit, my position is a bit different. I research uh, the particular history, but I don't mm. deal with the collection. Um, so I do want to uh, organize screenings and uh, and show the work as much as possible and I'll try to show it outside of the UK too and 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 probably in in feminist friendly context I mean with young filmmakers and uh, but but uh, that's that's it that's all I can I can do. and I, I think the thing that's interesting is all three of you talk again the thing I'm aware of as personal individual advocates, less so for you, Charlotte, you working group, but it's been very much led by the passion of the people involved. Yours is for both of you, I know for myself, from other people in the room. There's a sense that very often it's one person pushing it forward, but I think the thing is to, 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 fade, to do it in a number of different registers, whether it's workshops in Zurich, whether it's a screening at the Tate, whether it's a touring, we just have to hit at all these different levels and within, you're right, pedagogy as, as well, definitely. But I know, Isla, you, you have a question there in the corner. Hi there, thank you very much. Um, my name's Isla, I'm the director of Lux Scotland and I just kind of wanted to, I guess, come back to the title of the um, of this discussion, which is about writing and I'm very conscious that um, everybody's been talking about distribution of work and of film and video, but actually the distribution of words is often much more kind of economical and um, allows people to um, access work um, or have a very kind of specific form of mediation. And um, uh, Lux Scotland's kind of looking next year to start its own collection in tandem with the Lux collection. Um, and is kind of really starting from scratch in many ways. And I guess I'm always, um, as somebody who comes to this primarily from a writing background, I'm always struck by um, uh, what we might consider the work of um, uh, feminism uh, in film and video is always um, comes through issues of uh, t tension between recuperation on the one hand, which I think is a positive thing, and discovery on the other, which is um, slightly more a problematic form of looking at the work of women and of feminists in the past, whereas we've been talking about Peter Gadal and a certain kind of writing that occurred at the time, which is a, a lot um, of that type of writing I think about as forward thinking for posterity. Um, and there's a real kind of tension, I think, between this uh, past writing and uh, this future writing that um, I think was kind of touched upon recently. Um, and I was struck very much uh, when uh, Seninova had the showroom exhibition way back. I can't even remember the year now. Was it 2009? 2011. 2011. 
so it's not so far ago. But in my in my mind, uh, the way that I think about that show was very much in terms of uh, a lot of the writing uh, the that was shown alongside. And you showed one of the slides today, which is that amazing uh, aims and objectives of circles, and actually kind of how powerful a statement that is. Even though we couldn't read it. The, no, no, but even though you couldn't read it, you could see that there was a kind of clarity in that. And I'm also struck by things like, um, you know, the Castelli Sonnabend uh, film and video collection, how every catalogue entry, and that was written by Lizzie Borden, and what that means in terms of having a, like a singular female voice uh, kind of looking forward. And I was wondering if, you, if, if any of the panel could talk a little bit about how uh, the circulation of words and perhaps this is more relevant to, to Charlotte and Mark, um, accompanies uh, you know, a, a, a tour of work or um, you know, you, you, we talk about publishing as um, uh, publishing the work and also publishing text, but that becomes like a, a it has different skill set, I suppose. And I'm curious about what you think that, that skill set is that accompanies this work. Sorry, this is a very long, <laughs> long thing, but it's just about, um, I guess, two sets of distribution and two sets of skill sets when it comes to writing and moving image. I might answer first and then run to the bathroom and come back. <laughs> um, well, we commissioned Peter Todd to write an essay about uh, Joanna's work alongside the survey program that he's written. There's very little from Joanna herself that was written at the time about her filmmaking practice. Uh, two and a half pages in a literary magazine where she talks about it. Be nice to reproduce that. Um, I'm thinking that next year, if we do a DVD, it's really a kind of a mini book in disguise with a series of essays, um, with obviously Joanna's material from the time, and you know Peter now looking back and placing her in an international context. Um, we're really at the beginning of this process. Really, as I said, in the history of New Zealand, experimental film has hardly been articulated. So there isn't. We're not even 100% sure of what writing from the time might even be out there. Um, so we're just really starting the digging, I think. It's a little too well. Ask me in a year. It'd be really, it'd be interesting. Maybe I'll just run away. <laughs> Which reminds me, yes, um, we've got probably very, not much time left, so after this, we'll probably just take one more question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, could you just sort of clarify the end of it again? Sorry. I guess I was kind of interested, um, you know, if, if we talk about the distribution of um, film and video, quite often the people's first contact with the title is actually through a description of it. And that the writing of those descriptions sometimes up to the artist, and sometimes it's up to uh, the gallerist, sometimes, you know, there's a very um, odd situation of how that synopsis is formed. And I don't think that that's not outside of like what we can consider critical writing. It has a very specific descriptive function that circulates easier than the work itself. There's a, there's a huge responsibility that kind of comes with that. And I was wondering about how Saninova A deals with actually describing the work, you know, in terms of its online catalog, but also how it's dedicated to, to distributing the texts that it houses as part of that moving image collection. Okay. Um, That's not easier, is it? No, no, it kind of, it, I, I guess, I, it's, I'm glad you asked that question because I also felt like slightly uncomfortable with what I was talking about in the sense that with the title of this discussion and also the fact that I'm not a writer, so I felt kind of slightly intimidated by it. So that's why there was such a focus from me on, you know, the, the distribution side. Um, but I just want to clarify with Irene, with the descriptions, they're by the artists, aren't they? Or could... Oh, sorry. 
I think it's a, it's a really interesting question because every time, particularly in these recent projects like the Now Showing series that Charlotte was describing, people often ask, where are these descriptions from? Because um, some of them are actually authored, for instance, on the catalogue that you're talking about, I think, Ayla, and some of them aren't. But I think it, it mirrors the history in that there are all these layers and there were these two historical organisations which had both pre-existed for quite a long time. So... At this point, it's not always clear where the descriptions have all come from because many of them aren't authored. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question about the, the descriptions themselves. Um, just, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to, um, to um, pick up on that question to nuance something that I said earlier. I said the men were theorizing and the women weren't. Um, and of course, there are many counterexamples to that. Like, I'm, I'm working with Maria Clonaris and Katarina Tomadaki, and they were theorizing a lot about their work. And it was very important to them that they would always write the introductions, uh, the presentation to the films when the film was shown. Uh, and then each time that someone was showing the film, they would have to show the film alongside the text that they had written. Um, so they were really thinking about writing alongside the, the production of their films. Um, and they would most of the time um, show the text afterwards. You know, like the, it was the first experience with the work, and then give the text, and then have discussions with the audience. But that was really part of uh, how they thought about their practice. So I think well, I think what you're raising are really important questions about mediation and translation, and how that how you balance perhaps. Uh, historical writing which almost becomes an archive in itself that belongs to those films in terms of contemporary perspectives too so lots to consider there but I'm aware we're running out of time and I know that you had a question here in the front didn't you? Um, so perhaps we, we can finish with you well um, it's uh, uh, it's not so much a, a question as trying to draw attention to um, uh, a number of organizations and, and initiatives which I think feed into this um, event. I was really interested when you, um, Charlotte uh, said she was responding to requests and the whole issue is where do these, how do the, are these requests to be generated? And yes, I do agree that education um, is going to be crucial and I'm wondering about the film schools as a place where um, for filmmakers, you might bring um, women's work to, um, to potential new filmmakers, the past to the present. But also, there, um, it all is not quite as, as lost <laughs> now, um, partly due to those early initiatives. There is um, uh, a Women's uh, Film Pioneers Project database, a wonderful resource which is logging uh, the work of women internationally from uh, all through the silent period, Alice Guy, um, uh, is there. So just Google Women Film Pioneers, it'll come up. Um, in this country, we do have a network now, Women's uh, um, Film and Television History Network, mm. which uh, has a website, so just Google that and it'll come up. It's run uh, two conferences and the third is coming up next year in May called Doing Women's Film History. <laughs> and uh, the first book um, from the first conference is just published, which is also called Doing Women's Film History, and does 
have a chapter by Cecil Sheesh, you must know, um, addressing precisely the question of why um, women's experimental work um, uh, has been marginalised and working with the example of Maria Clonaris and Katerina Tomodaki. Um, we also run uh, a weekly blog, which uh, um, Angela Martin um, edits, and it would be just wonderful everyone here <laughs> would, could um, uh, publicise, <laughs> talk about uh, uh, either a single a person, but also a movement. I think we need to start thinking about how networks cling together, uh, how they how they develop new work in interaction with each other. And the history of past movements um, may well become an inspiration um, uh, for, for um, present movements to, to um, start new initiatives around the country, not just in London. Uh, and finally, the um, uh, conference which will be held in Leicester uh, May the 16th or 19th, 2016, um, is going to be able to offer a very small prize for the best PhD <laughs> um, um, paper that will be offered at that conference. So again, it w it's, 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 uh, it's um, byline, it's structures of feeling. So, um, and it's interested in, it's partly, it is interested in all kinds of filmmaking. Um, so, there is a public space. <laughs> Please use it. Well, it's interesting you say that because I remember going to the Doing Women's Film History Conference in Sunderland and there was only one panel on our women working, women working with, art, with moving image who artists. One panel. And so, there's still there's a sense that there's an interesting... There's a lot of work to be done there about women who work with moving image perhaps in the context of a of a, more of a modernist practice or in the context of a gallery practice, who are falling between their stools there. I know very much about your work, but I know that there hasn't been much integration with women working as artists with moving image or experimental films. So let's try and make that happen <laughs> more. Um, so we've got five minutes. Any burning or urgent thoughts or questions, um, in which case it just remains to say thank you very much to um, the three panelists for their wonderful discussion today. And um, that, you know, I hope you'll, will be lots of food for thought to keep writing, curating, seeing, moving those histories back into the present moment. Thank you very much. <laughs>